welcome to episode 278 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're back at it again with a little bit more of God's decrees. But this time, and on this episode, we're talking explicitly about election and reprobation. Everybody's favorite decrees, a little E and R, if you will. And so that's what's coming up. But of course, before we get to all of that good stuff, let's do some affirmations and denials. Let's go all out this week. We'll go both get the affirmations and denials from both of us. We'll see how it goes. So are you cool with me kicking this off with a little yeah, affirmation? Yeah, let's do it. So apparently there is a thing called the best illusion of the year contest. I, I don't know if you're familiar that this is a thing in our no. world, but... Apparently it is. And so I'm just affirming with this contest, which I kind of stumbled upon, but the winners of it in particular, I'm going to give people two things to look up on YouTube. So the winner of the contest is actually a video called the Phantom Queen. So go Google or go to YouTube and search for the Phantom Queen. That was the first place winner in the best of illusion of the year contest for 2021. In addition the second thing that's just super fun part of this contest that'll give you a little bit of something to noodle on, the second place is Michael A. Cohen's Changing Room Illusion. So go Google the Phantom Queen and the Changing Room Illusion. It'll give you something to enjoy. I almost don't want to say anything more about them. This is just a wonderful foray into the way in which God has made the world and our eyes and our brains to understand things. And I think there's equal parts perfection in God's creation and a little bit of the fall and all these things, but they're just so fun to participate in. So apparently this is a thing and I'm affirming with it because it put me into like a rabbit hole that was like wonderfully distracting and super interesting. Yeah. I was just looking at them and I should not start them because I'll I'll just have like 20 (laughs) minutes of silence as I watch these illusion videos. I love optical illusions. I don't know if you know this about it. Oh, really? I, really? I didn't know love that. optical illusions. I think my favorite one, I don't remember what it's called, but I saw it on that um, Verit- Veritas or Veritasium YouTube channel where it's like the window and it, it ah. actually like revolves, but it looks like yes. it's oscillating because of the way that the things work. So yeah. And it's, it's an illusion that, you know, a lot of illusions... If you know the trick, you can force your brain into seeing through it. But this is one that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you cannot force your brain into uh, not seeing the illusion. So I'm going to check this out. This will be like the rest of my afternoon will be... (laughs) Will be this this webpage. There's actually a webpage for the contest. Yes, there that is. Has all of the uh, illusions ranked the YouTube videos of the illusions. So yes, yeah, they're, I'm they're pretty super stoked. super interesting, and they're of a wide variety. Have you? This is dangerous because we could just talk about this the entire hour. Have you ever seen that illusion? I forget its name, but it's like it shows you basically kind of like two arced banners, one on top of the other, and the one on the bottom will always look smaller than the one on the top, even though they're yeah. exactly the same size. Yeah. To your point, this is one where I know I'm telling my brain they're exactly equal, but I cannot get my eyes to actually believe that that in fact is correct. So it's just wild the world that we live in and that God has made it this way. It's just absolutely glorious. So it's an affirmation that's pure fun. I think this is, I'm creating a new category, the potpourri category for affirmations and denials. This is straight potpourri, just for fun. So the website is illusionoftheyear.com, all one word. And it's got like, not only does it have um, like the videos of the the illusions, but it's got like a whole list of just the best illusions, the best optical illusions awesome. all over the place. So, and what they're named, which is kind of cool. So most of these illusions have like a specific name that they're referenced by in the, the um, literature. So yeah, I'm going to check this out. This is pretty sweet. Yeah, this is perfect for if one, you have a couple hours to spare. I mean, who doesn't, I guess. And or two, if you don't want to do something, (laughs) this is a good way to not do the thing you're trying to put off. Also, if you just want to trip your brain out completely and question all of reality. (laughs) It's like the Truman Show meets the Matrix meets Alice in Wonderland all at the same time. It's super fun. All right. How about you? What are you affirming with? 
So I'm affirming um, a person I know who is a, a minister in the Presbyterian Reformed Church of Columbus, Indiana. Colum- Columbus? Columbus, Ooh. Indiana. <laughs> Uh, his name is Brian Peters, and I've known him uh, through Facebook for quite a long time. And I don't know why it took me so long to check out his sermon audio feed, but uh, he's just a top-notch preacher. So he did a couple episodes uh, kind of on, he was preaching through Jude, and he was talking about uh, the one that I kind of jumped in on was uh, he did a sermon proving biblically, uh, and this is going to sound crazy, but just bear with me, proving biblically that the Archangel Michael actually is Jesus, but not in the weird Jehovah's Witness, Michael is a created being way, but in the sort of classic, and this is why I say don't think I'm crazy. There is a, a pretty long standing interpretive tradition, both right. within the Reformed tradition and outside, that identifies this figure in scripture who's named Michael as a pre-incarnate, um, a pre-incarnate I don't know, theophany of Christ. Um, so he did a sermon on that and that piqued my interest. I'm not quite there yet. Uh, I'm, I maybe lean that direction, but I haven't come to a settled conclusion on it. But he did a sermon just biblically defending that and proving from scripture why why it is that the people who hold this view do. Um, and then he did a, a sermon uh, just this last week on Michael and the devil. So that passage in Jude where it says that Michael... Um, right on. Michael contends with uh, yes. the devil over the body of Moses. And the reason I'm commending this to you is this sermon that he did, and it's titled Michael and the Devil, and it was published on uh, the 6th of February. So a week from a week from the yes, a week from today from when we're recording this, which is going to be a week <laughs> plus a few days from when you're hearing this. Uh, it's like a master class in letting scripture interpret scripture instead of letting extra biblical material interpret scripture. So the you know kind of like the the mainstream understanding of that passage is that it's this sort of allusion to this this document called the testimony of Moses or the assumption of right. Moses. And so it's this, it's this almost legendary account of Michael and the devil, uh, contending over the actual physical body burial location of Moses. And then of course we have to ask why would the devil and Michael be, and there's all these questions that come about and he spends a fair amount of time explaining why historically that's kind of a, a suspicious, uh, way to interpret that. Um, we don't have that document and the, the closest thing we do have to it is actually doesn't have that account in it. Um, but he goes to the passage in Zechariah where we actually do see Michael contending with the devil and he shows how if we let scripture interpret scripture that a better interpretation is that Michael and the devil are contending over God's people Israel who are called the body of Moses right in on. a similar way to how the church is called the body of Christ. And he, yeah, you really have to go listen to it. It's, it's a phenomenal sermon. It's well-researched. It's well-delivered. He's a very good preacher. Um, and he's just a rock, just a rock solid, good reformed thinker. Um, so I love to try to recommend, you know, the, the pastors and the preachers who aren't famous um, because I think there's such a wealth of just really good, solid, crisp theological preaching in the church that nobody would ever hear unless it gets recommended. So check it out. You can find him on Sermon Audio. It's Brian with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N Peters. Uh, and he, again, he preaches at Presbyterian Reformed Church of Columbus, Indiana. And, you know, this is this is one of those funny things is I, um, when I have someone that I know who is a solid Reformed thinker, and, you know, he and I disagree on some of the things that are sort of on the the border or the the circumference of Reformed theology, right? He's an exclusive psalmody guy. I'm not. Um, he has a very particular understanding of the regulative principle. I have a different, a different perspective on some of those things. When he and I end up agreeing on something forcefully, um, even when it's a secondary item, that's when I always, that's how I kind of check my work. If I'm thinking this is what the Bible teaches and what's inconsistent with the Reformed tradition and I'm having a tough time reasoning it out, a lot of times I'll shoot him a message and a lot of times we're just right on the same page. And then of course, it's like a day later that I'll be reading somewhere in Calvin and he makes the same argument like 1700 years ago than right. 1700, <laughs> like 500 years ago that I, than I was making. But yeah, check him out. I think you'll be edified by his preaching. I think you'll learn a lot from his style. And I think he is just a really solid biblical expositor. And the thing that impressed me the most is that he does, he makes use of historical sources. So he's going to point you to historical sources, but he really is striving to let the Bible be the interpreter of the Bible. And that's, I mean, that's the, that's the reformed hermeneutic right there as we let scripture interpret scripture. 
That's the jam. Sounds like absolute fire. First off, second off, we should probably disclose any date reference we've made so far in this podcast is probably suspect, but that's okay. <laughs> and uh, But here's the thing that's great is what a time to be alive where we can get access to all kinds of amazing preachers, even the ones that aren't quote unquote famous. I think there's something mm-hmm. really lovely about being able to dip into the life of the church in various places across our world by listening to sermons from the Lord's day that are being communicated to particular people. And like we said before, this isn't like supplant or replace or supersede your own experience, but it is a wonderful way to compliment and to be challenged and just to hear different voices. So I'm going to check that out. And like we've said before, I think we have a strong policy that two first names is a real crowd pleaser. So Brian Peters, like that's just a strong name right there. Yeah. It's even better when it's a first name and a last name, but the last name is is got something that makes it not a last or a first name. So it's it's not Brian Peter. It's Brian Peters. Right. Right. So like yes. it's like a first name, but it's yes. not a first name. It's clearly there's no confusion about which one is the first name and which one's the last name. It's like right in that sweet spot. That that's a good call. So like he's never inadvertently called Peters Brian, for right. instance. Yeah. Or right. like what's up Peters? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I lost track of where we're at. I think we're on your denial now, aren't we? Yes, we, okay. we better get well, what there. What are you denying the, today, Jesse? Yeah, this, this is amazing podcasting. So I think, like we said before, I'm contractually obligated at least once annually, and this is that time, to mention something from Pilgrim's Progress, which I know people are going to be throwing their phones at their ceilings right now saying, I've already spoken about this, but I'm coming back to my favorite passage, which I know I've already referenced this year, but we haven't explicitly talked about it. And that is, there's a passage in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, his friend Faithful, is ascending the hill, the hill of difficulty, and up from behind him comes this man running like the Dickens, like running like the wind. That's the way he describes it. And then he just, this guy just lays him out, beats him up, is like, what's the deal with that? And Christian's like, and that was Moses. <laughs> so I came to this passage just this past week and I was reading it and I love it so much. So I want to just like, re- it's only a paragraph. So would you indulge me? Is it cool if I read, read the paragraph? Please do. Please it's, do. it's amazing. So this is, this is actually the original from John Bunyan. So this is a first faithful dis- explaining, describing this circumstance. So he says, now when I'd got about halfway up, that is the hill he's climbing, I looked behind me and I saw one coming after me swift as the wind. So he overtook me just about the place where the settle stands. And then Christian asks him, what, what's up with that? And he responds, but good brother, hear me out. So soon as the man overtook me, he was but a word in a blow for down. He knocked me and laid me for dead. But when he was a little come to myself again, I asked him wherefore he served me. So he said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the breast and beat me down backward. So I lay at his foot as dead as before. So when I came to myself again, I cried him mercy, but he said, I know not how to show mercy. And without, he knocked me down again and he doubtless made an end of me, but the one came by and bid him forbear. And the one he's referring to there is Christ himself. So I'm just denying against this, the law again. And here's why it's, it's it particularly resonating with me this time around. And that is because I mentioned before, and I'm not, I uh, don't want to, get into this with some big elaborate explanation, but by my own volition, I'm taking, as you know, Tony, like this uh, certification test is in three parts. I'm into the second part, notoriously the most difficult part. It's a very hard test. And I'm in the stage of preparation where I'm about a week out. I'm taking all these practice tests. And here's what I'm finding. Of course, I'm measuring in somewhat legitimately so my degree of preparedness by the way I'm performing on these practice tests, but they're beating me down. And I find that my countenance from day to day in studying is, of course, in some ways measured or dictated by my performance. And there was a point where I was really finding myself sorely discouraged because for all the things I thought I understood, I find that the questions still elude me, that they beat me down. And of course, there's no forgiveness in them. You get it right or you get it wrong. And they're so nuanced and they're so particular and they're so purposefully tricky. And it made me think this week how blessed we are that that is not our standing before God, that the law is exactly like this. The test I'm taking is exactly like this. It's only by works. And in every way, as I'm trying to ascend the mountain with these questions, all I find is I keep getting beat down by them and that my performance is not only less than perfect, it's probably not what it ought to be. And so I'm just, again, denying against 
the fact that anytime we try to smuggle in the law to make us feel good about something we've done for God or that we might have a better standing before him or that we've undertaken a certain set of actions or behaviors or even thoughts that somewhat ingratiate ourselves to him, what we're also doing is saying, I'm willing to be condemned and beat up by the fact that in every other way I fall short and certainly I don't keep it to perfection. I am so grateful, so immeasurably thankful that my standing before God is not based on passing a test because I can tell you for certain in my own experience with the test I'm trying to study for that I would absolutely fail it 100% of the time. So I'm just so thankful. We've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. And for everybody else in the back who hasn't yet heard, I am denying against this law that we would put ourselves under to be slaves to when Christ has come by. And as Bunyan says, the one who bid him forbear. I'm so glad that there was one who's done that for me. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing to add to that. That's the gospel. <laughs> I mean, that's, we don't want to add to the gospel, right? That's, I mean, that's not like the heart of your, uh, heart of your denial is not adding to the gospel. But I guess so. Well, then let's just move on. What are you denying? So mine is, I feel like the tables are turned here. I feel <laughs> like yours was super spiritual and mine's like now really frivolous and silly. Uh, so I'm mostly, this is just so like, I don't know, like like seven months from now, I can, I can have a record of the fact that I've said this. Okay. So we, we we are, uh, my wife and I, your sister and I are expecting a child, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of three weeks from now, give or take, depending on whether he is a Johnny on the spot or whether he's a little bit, a little bit late. We picked the name for this child. Uh, I don't know. Gosh, it's got to be seven months ago now that we finalized it. Maybe, maybe six months ago. Okay. Before I had ever heard anyone else use this name in any serious fashion. Yeah. And now I'm finding out that the name that we picked, <laughs> which we specifically picked because we didn't want him to be in like class with a bunch of other Augusts. His name is August Jesse. Uh, apparently, August is like going to be apparently going to be one of the most popular names it in is. 2022. Yeah. And I, I don't really understand how this happened. Uh, but I just want it on record for the entire internet to know this isn't me being a hipster. I'm not a hipster. I don't really care if I did it before it was cool. I just don't want people to think that I was just jumping on the bandwagon. So we we decided to name him August Jesse before I had ever heard of this. But according to uh, the website Nameberry, which um, they do a pre- like a predictive best names of 2022. So maybe they'll be wrong, but I don't think so. They've got a pretty good track record. Uh, August is like the second most, one of the second most popular names they're anticipating for the coming Boom. year. So yeah, sorry. Sorry, baby August that you've got a bunch of Augusts <laughs> in your <laughs> class. If you're listening to this, I don't know, seven years from now, I hope you're, I, I, I don't know if I hope that he's listening to this oh, seven man. years from now or not, but uh, sorry. So I'm just denying the rest of the world picking my baby's name for their baby. So everybody's on point. It's on blast. You're on notice. I know you want to use the name August because apparently like the queen's granddaughter did and Mandy Moore did. Yes. But uh, don't just don't. So here's the thing. Do you not sense though? I'm sure you feel this way. That's one of those things where like, you ended up in the same place. So there was the ends, but the means were totally different here right. because like you guys have like a totally different path on that name. Yeah. And and that's where like, when you explained it, I was like, Oh, that's on point. And then I didn't know that until my wife was like, it's, it's I don't know. Apparently she's researching baby names with some regularity was like, this ends up to be, I think everybody was surprised actually. Right. Like, yeah. I think oh, yeah. you were surprised. We were surprised. Like really August is. And then once we found out why that is like a bunch of famous people have basically applied that name like circumstantially in, in recent I times. I know. I, I just, I'm, yeah. <laughs> it's a great name. Here's the thing. It is. It, it's a it, great name. It's a so great here's name. The, here's the reasoning that we picked the name. We picked the name because we liked the name. Like we didn't have any real strong, like there's no one in our family named August. We weren't naming him after anyone particular. As we started to talk about it and we started to bounce around some other names, we had a couple other boy names in mind. Uh, what really settled the deal is we decided that we liked that this was kind of a head nod to St. Augustine or St. Yeah, Augustine, right however you want to say it. Um, you know, uh, nothing against people who name their children af- directly after famous theologians, but we just didn't want to do that. Um, so we liked the name. It was a nice little head nod to, Aug- to Augustine or Augustine. Um, and we just thought it would be cool. And it's got a super cute nickname. He'd be Augie when he's little. Right. We might call him AJ when he's a teenager. Um, I suppose by then probably his friends are going to decide what his nickname is. Um, you know, or he could be Gus. Like there's a bunch of different nicknames, which was important to us. 
wasn't even on our radar that maybe this was going to be one of the most popular names in 2022. Uh, th- although this other this article is also saying that the word Rainera, the name Rainera, uh, is a <laughs> is also going to be popular because that's the name of a character in the upcoming Game of Thrones prequel. So we'll have to see if this bears out or whether this is a weird, oh, just a weird fluke article. Either way, it's a super strong name. It's a great yeah. name. And it the, again, going back to the illustrious Brian Peters, also a crowd pleaser because you got great initials. So, a and J is like kind of like a classic. That's like peanut yeah. butter and jelly for, mm-hmm. I don't know why in the English language, it just sounds like it's supposed to be. So it's like mellifluous. It's very pleasant to the ear. You want to hear that. So you guys did a good job. Well, before we get started in our topic, I want to make an exciting announcement. Last week, we alluded to the fact that there might be some new merchandise coming on the Reform Brotherhood uh, merch store. So if you'd like to purchase something, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com. There's a little button that says join the Brotherhood. And somewhere in that list of seven things uh, that you can do to make the Reformation cooler, um, <laughs> you can pick uh, shop or buy merchandise. And we, right. after a long time of trying to find a good vendor that could do this for us, we were able to procure... Reform Brotherhood pint glasses. So you can go to the website. They're live now. Uh, There's one that I like, I think is the best, is the one with the the full color logo. Uh, If you want something a little little more understated, then you can go with the black and white version. And uh, there's not much to it. There's no frills. It's just a pint glass. But uh, (laughs) you can pick that up. It's a good looking glass. Uh, and we would love it if you would do that. Um, the the stuff you purchase at the website does give us a little bit of residual, which helps us. So if you're not quite ready to jump on for like a uh, like a repeating donation, if you don't have that in your budget, uh, but maybe you uh, are looking for a new pint glass, you can help us out a little bit by purchasing something there. There's t-shirts, there's stickers, there's mugs. The mugs are just the best mugs. Killer. Um, yeah, you can get t-shirts. Again, uh, there's lots of cool stuff. You can get a face mask, although uh, right now they're saying cloth face Ooh, yeah. masks are not necessarily the best so if you're going to do that wear that double over, it up wear that over a regular surgical Buy mask two. uh not because it protects you more but just because it's a fashion statement but yeah check it out <laughs> you can purchase that merch uh right from the website there and like you said part of those proceeds obviously cover just the cost of the item itself everything else goes right back into the podcast so it goes mm-hmm. back into covering our fees covering the distribution costs making sure it downloads to you every week and is it downloads in not in less than like an hour <laughs> so all these things <laughs> actually matter because Tony and I are long-winded you would think that somehow that would mean that it, we could compress all that but it's still a lot of data we're trying to push across the internet so all of this stuff actually covers our costs and there's a lot of fun stuff out there and I would say there's something for everybody now like I saw that you sent me these the mock-ups of the glasses and I was like man it was like handsome glasses now again both of our faces are on that so I understand this is self-serving but again something for everybody maybe your exclusive somnity you want the black and white maybe you have like a little bit of variety and you want you want the color either way somehow they ended up both looking really good actually the black and white I thought was like really kind of compelling in a weird way like it made us look like kind of formal and I don't know, like classy. Did you think that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like the color, but yeah, the, the black and white looks a little more stately. It's like, it's yes. like, uh, it's like what you'd get if we were doing a real serious episode. Yes. It's like if you and I were on the wall street journal, that's what it would look like. It would be in that kind of, that yeah. Black and or white, like if so. you, if we needed a logo for the, uh, when we did the artsy sprawl tribute episode, that's the, we yes. use the black and white one for that. Yes. Because it's serious, serious. And it's sober minded, sober minded. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. So please go check that out. If you're inclined in addition, of course, we want to thank everybody else who has come alongside us and given some of the resources to help make sure the podcast is free for everybody. That's what makes it actually free for everybody. And we have so many brothers and sisters that have come alongside through patreon.com to do that with these little donations. Every little bit counts. It aggregates up and it helps us to make sure we can cover the costs and keep it free. And so we had brother Ken join us in that journey this past week. And I want to especially thank brother Ken for jumping in and joining us through patreon.com. Of course, like Tony said, go out to reformbrotherhood.com. All kinds of fun stuff out there. There's a little link that says join the brotherhood. There's seven things. Why seven? Because it's a perfect number. So there's seven different things you can do of all kinds of variety to make the Reformation better. That's what we advertise. And I'd like to think we deliver on it. 
It's true. Well, before we jump into like reform brotherhood, <laughs> gematria or something like that, get into numerology for the brotherhood here. Why don't we get into our topic, Jesse? Yeah, let's, let's get after it. So we're obviously moving through this never ending series, which is basically all of the truths of the faith, the full counsel of God, understanding these things. And we started basically on talking about divine decrees last week. And of course, now we find ourselves on really like the granddaddy of divine decrees, or let me say it this way, like the one that has like the most heat associated with it. And we're going to talk about yeah. election and reprobation. And by way of like, let's give a classical kind of definition, especially as it kind of comes alongside or is integrated with the reform tradition of this idea of election. So let me start by saying, I would define this when I'm having a conversation where I'm thinking about it in my own mind, when I'm reading the scriptures and trying to understand what it's telling me, I would say that Election, the biblical doctrine, say it that way, of election, is that before creation, God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, those whom he would redeem, who would bring to faith, justify and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. And of course, we could look to Romans, Ephesians, Thessalonians, um, 2 Timothy, all for different particular examples of this. And what we're after here and kind of articulating it that way, or at least I am, I don't want to put words in your mouth, is that this divine choice is an expression of free and sovereign grace on the part of God because it is unconstrained, it's unconditional, and it's not merited by anything in those who are its subjects. So God doesn't owe sinners any mercy of any kind. He actually, he really only owes us condemnation. So it's really a wonder in a matter of endless praise that he should choose to save any of us. And doubly so when the choice involved giving of his own son to suffer as a sin bearer for the elect. That actually takes us, I think, back to John Bunyan. But nonetheless, for me, that's kind of like the foundation of this idea of what election is. I would say like at the very start, Sometimes we get off on the wrong foot when we forget that it is in love that God has done this. And so that shapes the entirety of this divine decree that we're about to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So election and reprobation, I think they become sort of the hot topics because they are so personal to everyone, right? Because sure. we, we all, you know, I think... For the most part, everyone listening to the show is a Christian. I don't think we have a lot of non-Christian listeners. Uh, if you are a non-Christian listener, welcome. We're glad you're here, and we'd love to love to explain the faith to you, and, and we pray that you'll someday come to repentance in Christ. But most of our listeners are people who've already confessed uh, and trusted in Jesus. And so election is already a really personal thing to us because we, we see ourselves in the text as those who God has chosen and predestined in Christ. And on the flip side, we all know people, I think most of us know people who are not Christians and who, in terms of our own natural ability to, to sort of predict um, or, or guess at what will happen, uh, we know people that we believe probably will never come to faith, either because they're approaching the end of their life and it, it just doesn't seem like that's going to happen, um, or because they're so entrenched or they're particularly uh, wicked people whoever they might be, we have all these people in our lives that we, we would probably say with good reason, not because we've given up hope because there's always hope, but, but we look at them and we say, this person is probably a reprobate. This person probably is not elect. And, and the reason we can say that is because, and everyone probably is a reprobate until God changes them. Right. So Amen. we're all, we should almost always be a little bit surprised when someone comes to faith because it is a right miraculous on. event, but there's these two categories of people. And we, we ourselves are in one category and we know lots of people in that category. And then there's a second category and we have people that we on reasonable grounds think are probably in that category. So there's a personal element to this that I think causes a bit of heat. Um, and also this is sort of like the focal point of God's decrees, right? Right. So a lot of times, you know, we start with kind of the general decrees, you know, God decrees to create, he decrees for this animal to be this way. Those are all very impersonal. They don't, they don't really touch us. I mean, they, they should, I mean, it's part of the world we live in. It's all, it's part of the environment that we're in, but they're broad. They don't, they don't really touch us in a personal or emotional way. And then maybe we get in a little bit closer and we talk about maybe like how God has decreed evil. He decreed the fall. We'll talk about the logical order of God's decrees next week um, or in the coming weeks. And that's a little bit more personal. There's a little bit more heat. But then we get to this inner circle here. And this is right. the, not only is it the sort of the closest to our own experience. And so there's some emotion and some personal 
uh, skin in the game on it. But also God's decrees seem to culminate in the scripture in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And so this decree to choose some for salvation and to actively bring about their salvation, and we'll talk about all the details of that here as we go. And then on the flip side, to also decree that these people would not be saved. Uh, right. And to do so in a slightly different way, but even though we might we might call it passive, we don't want to say that God is passive, even though he is actively passing by, he's actively not taking action. He's not doing so simply by means of inaction or something like that. And we'll parse that out. This is the culmination of God's decrees. And that's why I think it's so important for us to talk about in some specificity, but it's also why it becomes such a hotbed of of argument and dispute. And even among Protestant reformed-ish or reformational traditions, um, and when I say reformational, I mean like the the reformed, the Lutheran, the Arminian tradition, which would kind of come out of the reformed tradition is still sort of a branch of the magisterial reformation, but it's it's like a sub-branch. The main differences between a lot of those things is right in the doctrine of soteriology, specifically in God's election, God's decree of election. And so there's there's extra heat involved in it there because it's also where we disagree the most with some of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we might agree on 95% of the faith uh, on one level or another, and then we disagree on this one this one part. Well, that's where we're gonna we're gonna get the most heated and the most argumentative. So I want to try to do this this conversation without getting too heated. I want to try to be sort of cerebral and not too passionate, but it's hard to, it's hard to do, to be honest with you. Because this is this is central too to the way that the reform conceptualize our understanding of the gospel above and beyond or maybe over and against specifically the ref, the uh, the Arminian perspective, but in right. some ways uh, over and against the Lutheran perspective too. So it's hard for us not to be super passionate because this is so central to our own self-definition. I had a different objective. I thought we were going to get heated up on this episode. Oh, we could do that. I mean, we didn't do our normal pre-conference <laughs> interview, so we could just we could just do that instead. But I like the way that you said that. It, it's always, of course, because doesn't that intimate that, of course, what we said all along, that theology is at its root, like intensely practical, that, mm-hmm. of course, is life affecting, that it has something that bears an impact on how we live, how we understand. And of course, we're talking about like eternal destiny. There's so much in the human condition that wants to say that we have something to do with that. And we're from the face. Like all of the statements we're going to make about this are robust. Like there's not a non-robust, like throwaway statement here. Everything comes with great gravity and great weight. But, and that's why I started with this idea of, of love, because I think that's also kind of where you were going is this idea that in scripture, everything we're talking about here is this is a pastoral doctrine. It's brought in to help yeah. Christians see how great is the grace that saves us and to move us to humility, confidence, joy, praise, faithfulness, and holiness in response. And what I picked up from what you said is I felt like you were kind of like, you pulled up like a stool and you sat down on it and like... <laughs> In, in the sense like that it is, it is like the family secret of the children of God. Like yeah. we do not know who else he has chosen among those who are yet to believe, nor why it is when his goodness, ple- that his pleasure was to choose a particular person. What we do know is first that had we not been chosen for life, we would not be believers now. And second, that as elect believers, we may rely on God to finish in us the good work that he started all of this is great comfort and yeah. great joy. It comes though with a hard edge that God's truth is always like miraculous mercy, but also there is a hard edge. I think that's consistent with his character and who he is, something that we've already ex- talked about explicitly. So I'm not saying that these, these things aren't hard, but it's also that God has shown his great mercy in what he has done by his own volition in election and reprobation. Yeah. Just before we get into it, I want to read this passage from the Westminster um, Confession of Faith. And, you know, the Westminster sometimes gets this reputation, the Westminster Standards. Uh, I, I don't know exactly why, because I don't really find it to be apt, but it gets this reputation as being sort of detached and analytical. And then the the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic, like that's the warm pastoral confession. And I want to read this out of chapter uh, three, which is uh, of God's eternal decree. And this is how they close out the chapter. 
in section eight. The doctrine, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending to the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So, so we are trying to frame this, this doctrine and confessionally speaking for those who consider themselves to be subscribers to the Westminster confession, whether that's ministerial subscription as a, you know, an officer in the OPC or whether that's sort of this more casual subscription that I think most of our listeners would fall under where we look at it, we say, yeah, this is the doctrine of, this is the body of doctrine that I believe we're confessionally bound to be cautious and diligent and humble right. with the doctrine of election. Yes. So when you run into, and this is, this is maybe one of the markers between like a confessional person and maybe someone who's, who's sort of on the young restless reform spectrum. It's not like, it sounds like some sort of disorder, but on that sort of that <laughs> side of things, someone who comes at election and is puffed up and arrogant about it is not right. reformed. Like right. they're not. Because to be reformed is to have humility in reference to the doctrine of election. And so we all fail in many ways. And this is certainly one of those ones where we have a tendency. But someone who axiomatically is puffed up about election, puffed up about their understanding, is using it like a weapon, is kind of discompassionate about it, is not reformed. I mean, like just in terms of the confession is not reformed. Um, But I want to read, in addition to that, to sort of start our conversation out in earnest, I want to read question 12, which maybe would have made more sense for us to read last week, but I think it'll it'll play in here. Uh, Question 12 of the larger catechism says, what are the decrees of God? And the answer is God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he hath for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, right? So that's that's what we talked about last last week, kind right. of the scope and the scale and the, the extent of his decree. But they add this little thing in here, and it says, especially concerning angels and men. So mm. So the decree of election, as I said earlier, it really is theologically the culmination of God's decrees. Everything else that God has decreed in terms of of create the created order, so all that God has decreed, right? The, the decree of God is the external statement of His will, and then by that external statement of His will, everything comes to pass. It's specifically focused on the eternal destiny of angels and men. And then right. question thirteen says, "What hath God especially decreed concerning angels and men?" The answer is God, by an eternal and immutable decree out of his mere love for the praise of his glorious grace to be manifested in due time, hath elected some angels to glory and in Christ hath chosen some men to eternal life and the means thereof. And also according to his sovereign power and the unsearchable counsel of his will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth favor as he pleaseth, hath passed by and foreordained the rest to dishonor and wrath to be for their sin inflicted to the praise of his glory of his justice. And so, you know, this this decree of election, in, in reference to angels, there are some that are elect to, to glory, and they, they start in a state of glory, and they, they remain in a state of glory. And there are some angels who start in a state of glory and fall from that state of glory, and then they remain in that fallen state. For men, they start, you know, Adam started in a state of perfection and then he fell right. and then now has been restored. But for the rest of us, we start in this fallen position and now we'll be elevated or restored to that, to that eternal state. But there's this, this duality that is present both in terms of angels and in terms of men that we have to reconcile, we have to grapple with because a lot of times reformed people, because they've heard kind of horror stories of double predestination, right? They've heard kind of this hyper-Calvinistic that God predestines people to hell, and so he causes them to do evil so that he can justify sending them to hell. They've seen this duality played out in the absolutely the wrong way. And so today, I think we're going to spend a good chunk of our time talking about that asymmetry in in double predestination. Make no mistake, reformed people affirm double predestination, we affirm double predestination 100% yes. It's right there in our confession. He ordains some to everlasting life, and he ordains some to everlasting ruin. But the the way that he executes that or that foreordination, the way that he brings that to pass is not symmetrical. It doesn't look the same on both sides, and that's really important for us to land. 
Right. That's super helpful. Like maybe it would be a good time then to introduce like a compliment to what I said before about what election is. So I would say again, reprobation is the name given to God's eternal decision regarding those sinners whom he has not chosen for life. So his decision is in essence, a decision not to change them as the elect are destined to be changed, but to leave them to sin as in their hearts, they already want to do. And finally to judge them as they deserve for what they have already done. So when in particular instances, God gives them over to their sins, and that's kind of like Romans one style, this is itself the beginning of judgment. It's called like the hardening and inevitably leads to greater guilt, which of course leads to that final condemnation. So I think what you've articulated really well is we want to, at the same time, acknowledge that God has a volition in all of this. Right. At the same time, man is, man is responsible. That is like our nature is in the fallen state, the one that has the clenched fist against God that is rebellious, is a covenant and a lawbreaker. And so that deserves punishment. That is what should be meted out against what is rightfully deserved in terms of accomplishing the acts that are against God and that turn against from, away from his character. So I think because I know people are going to be triggered by what you said in the sense of like, it, we all, every Calvinist, every like reformed person believes in double predestination in the sense that like, this is the reality, right? Like we right. can't, we can't run away from that. We can't escape the fact that hell is a reality. And so because of that, there is divine reward and there is divine punishment. All those things are just. So the, the question is like, not how do we square a circle in all those things, but how do we understand them in light of God who is loving, God who is glorious, God who is in control of all things, who has a volitional impact on all of life? Where do all these things come together? Yeah. And maybe a helpful way to come about this is to contrast it with something that you might call single predestination. Right. So I, I know that the Lutherans have a variety of views. So not every Lutheran that you talk to is going to agree with this characterization. But in, in the Lutheran model or in, in one of the Lutheran models, and I think probably the closest to Luther's actual view, basically God elects everybody. God chooses to save everybody. He tries to save, ev- tries isn't the right word. He intends to save everybody. Right. He provides go. salvation for everybody. Everyone who is baptized, in fact, receives effectual grace and is regenerate and is saved unless you engage your will to reject that. But when you engage your will to reject the salvation that God has given to you in your baptism or in, you know, when you're not a child and you are a convert, when you reject your will, when you execute your will to reject the grace that is offered to you, you're not, that is not something God chose for you. So he's not predestined you to hell. He predestined you to heaven and you sort of circumvented that. Again, not every Lutheran is going to agree with that characterization. I get it. Go ahead and just send your email straight to Chad Bird. But (laughs) that is what you might call a single predestination. There's another kind of single predestination that I've heard some Lutherans talk about. I don't know how widespread it is, where God basically chooses some and he's going to guarantee that those people are saved. And then everyone else has the option, but God isn't going to guarantee it. I think that's right. a less common view, but I've also heard that in Lutheran circles. And so what you have in that way is the the asymmetry of election. It's, it's also an asymmetrical election in that the only election that is made is unto salvation. That's the only election that God makes. God, God chooses for no one to perish. That is not his election. He hasn't elected anyone for damnation. In Reformed theology... Um, and I, you know, I said, I think that was closer to Luther's view. I think if Luther had actually written a systematic theology, he probably would have gotten to the same basic spot anyways. He's not, he's not as geared up about logical consistency as someone like Calvin was, but he also wasn't a slouch in that area. So I think if he had, if he had been in that arena to be doing that kind of theological work, he might've ended up here anyways. In reformed theology, God foreordains everything. And so if, if God has chosen some to be saved and chosen not for others to be saved, then that is a kind of election, right? God has chosen right. A for this group of people, and he's chosen B for that group of people. Where in the, the uh, Lutheran view, God has chosen A for everybody, and some people choose B for themselves and reject A. Now, I know that might seem like just shades of variation, but it really does have a lot of important um, important theological import because what it does is it it preserves this idea that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. The right. Lutheran view or the Lutheran model that I just presented, which again, please don't send me your hate mail. I know that not every Lutheran believes this, 
but the Lutheran model that I just presented, God doesn't really foreordain whatsoever comes to pass because he has not foreordained in a strict sense, anyone being condemned to hell. He's not foreordained that. He didn't decree that. He didn't choose that. And, and he, he chose otherwise, but human will intervened and sort of chose away from God's will. And I think we've been pretty clear that that just isn't, that's not within the scope of Reformed theology. But what we do need to recognize is that while there's this asymmetry on the Lutheran view, we should not swing so far to the other side to then affirm a total symmetry in election on the Reformed view. That's not the confessional view. That's not the view that someone like Calvin would hold. There are some passages in Calvin, just to be transparent, that seem a little bit closer to that. But Calvin would not have held this symmetrical predestination. None of the right. Reformed divines do. Beza gets a little bit closer in some places. But for the most part, the Reformed have always looked at it and said, when God chooses some for salvation, he brings about their salvation first by uh, creating faith in them, which all Reformed people would agree. The Lutherans would agree with that too. First by creating faith within them, and then also by working by the Holy Spirit to sanctify them and bring about all the good works that come about after that. So he's active in creating blessings and good things. On the flip side, they would look at it and say, all of the evil that comes about, the rejection of Christ as sort of the chief evil for all humans, the rejection of Christ, that comes from the human nature. But God is not absent from that in that he has chosen not to contramand that. Right. He has chosen not to regenerate that person, to create faith, to turn them to Christ. He has chosen to pass by them and leave them in their fallen state rather yes. than to rescue them from that fallen state. Yes. But that's important, right? Because what you're saying is that the the passing by is purposeful and not incidental, right? Mm-hmm. And so that you did that right when I took a drink. So I was like, <laughs> and it was sorry. like scotch. So I can't just drink it. I can't just swallow it fast. I know you were like pausing for effects. Like, as no. if like we were all pregnant on that, no pun intended <laughs> on like what was happening there. And we were waiting for you to give a response. Yeah. See, that's the difference. That's important because I would actually argue that I think so. So hear me on this. Like, I think there are some like in just kind of general Christian, maybe Western evangelicalism that would agree with a lot of what you said so far, right. like that God does a work, God does something, God, not even like provenient grace, but like God has to do the calling, but that it's as if like God calls and you pick up the phone and you're like, yeah, I'm not just, I'm not that interested. Right. This is what gets encapsulated in like that old, maybe oft used or inappropriately used phrase from C.S. Lewis where he wrote something to the extent of, in the end, there are people that will say to God, thy will be done. And then to whom God will say, thy will be done. Right. That's like a perfect encapsulation of the fact that somehow God has made a way for all people and that volitionally he has chosen essentially all people. I actually find what's interesting about that is when we think about it, we find that it actually undermines this love and mystery of God that we're talking about. Because right. like, if this is something of the family of God, if there's a special, or let's say, maybe say differently, a more fully orbed or a differently developed love of God toward those whom are his children, we'd expect there to be a different reaction toward them, right? I just, I did it again. <laughs> Man, this is great podcasting this week. Sometimes we're like, sometimes we're right on it and other times it's this week. Um, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Is There is this perspective and this is just, you know, before, I think this is the way that most Christians who haven't been catechized in, in a formal sense and haven't thought deeply about this. This is the way that most Christians, I think, as a default think. They think that God, yeah, I, I understand that God has saved me by grace through faith so that no man may boast, right? I get that. That's, that's right in Ephesians. That makes sense to me. So whatever happened in salvation, that was God. And then we flip over to the other side of it, and we're not willing to say that God has in any sense been involved or intending the damnation of those who do not come to faith. Right. And that's where I think we need to we need to step back and rethink it. And you know, it's funny, I I um I don't know why I remember this scene. Do you remember the show Smallville? It was like this it was like this Superman you wouldn't know this show cuz you don't watch TV. <laughs> but Smallville was this it was on the CW right which I I think was called Warner Brothers Network at the time. I, I think so. really too yeah. deep into this. But it was yeah. a it well was done. basically like Superman when he was in high school. It was like Clark Kent as a high school student before he became Superman. And I don't know why this scene sticks out to me, but I think it's a really good analogy to sort of think about this. And there's this scene where he, you know, he's kind of this like 
quiet nerdy kid and he he sort of plays the withdrawn like kind of nerd for most of high school and he gets to this point where he wants to play football he's from Kansas he wants to play football and his father or his adoptive father basically saying like what are you, are you crazy like you can't play football you're going to kill somebody and mm. and what he says is no I'll take the hit and I'll take the fall and so there's this scene basically where like he 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 has to take the tackle and allow himself to be tackled by not resisting it in any sense. Because he could just stand there and the person would just run into him. Right. right? He's Superman. He's he's this alien that has these super strength. So he passively allows himself to be tackled, but that passive allowance of him being tackled is actually an active conscious choice on his part. Right. Because if he were to be truly passive and just stand there unresponsive to anything, the person would bounce off of him like a wall because that's he's Superman. Just like he a bullet bounces off of him, so would this kid who tried to tackle him. So he's passively allowing himself to be tackled, but it's an active conscious decision and he has to act in order for it to happen, right? He has to fall back right, exactly. and act as though he's being tackled and he's, he's not cheating. I mean, it's like the opposite of cheating. He's not even really throwing the game. He's intentionally moving at human speeds. And when someone catches him and tackles him because he's moving at human speeds, he reacts the same way a human would. So in a similar kind of way, God is allowing He's allowing people who are part of fallen humanity, and we, we maybe this is like maybe this is an example of why we should have done the order of the decrees first. But whatever, he's he's allowing <laughs> people that he has chosen out of a out of a fallen humanity. He looks at a, a total collection of fallen humanity, and he says, "This group of people, I will actively bring about their salvation. I will right. give them everything they need. Christ will die for them. My, I will send my Holy Spirit. All of these things I'm going to do for them positively. I'm going to take action on their behalf." Then there's this other group of people that he he passes by them. But by passing by them, he's doing that as an act of conscious decision. So just like just like Clark Kent, well, not just like, in a similar way to Clark Kent, <laughs> allowing that person to tackle him, he's having to, God is allowing a person to sin against him. He's allowing right. person a person to remain persistent in their sin, to reject Christ. He's allowing all of this happen, but not in this passive sense in that he's just not acting right? It's an active passivity, which is a weird concept. But this Clark Kent perspective, I think it's it's similar to that. It's a conscious decision. It's not just a refusal to act or a refusal to move. It's not a staticness. It's a an active withdrawing from that person. He actively right. withdraws. And this is something we all need to recognize. This is this is for probably further down the road when we get to the fall. But even even someone who is apart from Christ, part of the common grace that God has given humanity is that he restrains evil. So no one person, even, you know, like the the worst of the worst, Adolf Hitler could have been more evil than he was, right? Sure. I don't know if this is true, but the story goes that he had a dog that he loved very much. He was good to his dog. He was kind to his dog. You know, he took care of his mother, right? So even Hitler had things that he did that were civically commendable. I know somebody's going to isolate that clip and put it on the internet, but <laughs> no one person is as evil as they could be. And so right God on. in reprobation actively withdraws himself from that person. He actively withdraws his restraining presence and allows them to fall further and further and further into their sin. And that's Romans one, right? right he turned exactly. them over to their own passions, to their own lusts, their own desires. It's not that God is causing them to sin in a, in a, uh, in an immediate secondary sense, right? It's not that he is is actively bringing about their sin. He's not actively creating evil in them. The evil is already there. They created that Amen. evil, but he's right. withdrawing his restraining presence and allowing that evil to come to fruition. And so this, this um, you can kind of think of it this way. In the believer, the Holy Spirit indwells us and causes us to do good and causes us to trust Christ more and more and causes us to come alive, Right. The Holy Spirit is not indwelling unbelievers and causing them to reject Christ right. more and more and causing right. them to do exactly. Works. If we had a true symmetrical predestination and a true symmetrical election reprobation schema, then the Holy Spirit would in some sense be like indwelling people, causing them to, to reject Christ, causing them to turn further away. And that's not what we're saying. That's not what the Reformed tradition is saying. Right. Yeah, that's right on. I think that's a critical distinction and something that we often kind of underemphasize. If and this, man, does everything go back to Pilgrim's Progress or is it just me at this point? Man, you keep doing that. It's just you. <laughs> 
See, what everybody can't see is that I keep throwing back to Tony questions right when he's about to take a sip. So this idea that like really apart from Christ in our fallen state, we become more like ourselves when Christ removes himself from us, God removes himself from us and we kind of devolve further into our own sinfulness. This idea of being like the first Adam, that's like the very thing that like, again, this is who we are outside of God himself. So this intervening, this rescue that we so desperately need is in fact a rescue. It is something outside of ourselves. It is transcendent. It is something that is a gift and a grace and not something we ought to expect that we have somehow earned or entitled to. And I think that's like the main difference in how we approach this particular theological aspect of election. So if it's true that Christ loves the church in a way that husbands ought to love their wives, you know, like if a man loved his wife in the same way that he loved every other woman, I'm pretty sure we'd call that adultery. Yeah. So why do you think it's important for a wife to know that her husband loves her in a special way? If Christians are the children of God, does a parent love his child in the same way that he loves every other person's child? I am not a parent. You will soon be a parent, brother. It's true. But I'm going to guess the answer to that is, is no. So if you accept the truth that God sends unbelievers to eternal punishment in hell, is it a much bigger step to believe that God does not love these people in the same way as he loves those whom he saves, that he is yeah. arrested into his own particular family. I don't think we're saying here that it's, we're saying God doesn't love all people, but it's the way in which that he loves them. And that is 100% his prerogative. So election means that God can save whomever he wants. The decision of who is saved is ultimately in his hands. So if God loves everybody the same way, why didn't he choose everybody. This this is to emphasize, I think, as Paul says, like the gloriousness of his grace. And it is, in a sense, to put us all under this immense weight of humility. Like you said, I, probably, I think that's like the best way I've heard it said in a while. If you somehow use this as like, if you brandish this as a weapon to say like, election means that I can lord over you the fact that somehow I'm more important or more knowledgeable or understand more things about God, then you, you've certainly not within the stream of reform theology. Because if anything, it is to emphasize that there is nothing that is good within us absent God's own influence. And so every part of us needed rescue. And when he does that, he does it not because he looks ahead to the quarters of time and somehow sees like, well, this person is particularly receptive or they'll make a choice. Or when the sermon comes to them, they're going to somehow fall on their knees at the altar. In fact, like if we go all the way back to the book of Acts, why did some believe and not others? Luke's answer is it's election. But he says in uh, 1348, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So this appointment, this election was not based on some kind of foreseen faith. It was the cause yeah. of faith. And that cause, we have the only person we, ho- we have to thank is God himself, not ourselves. Yeah, and you know, I, I hear it said sometimes when people are um, kind of resisting or trying to argue against the Reformed view that it just, it seems out of character for God not to offer forgiveness. You know, they don't go so far as to say like that it's unjust of God or that somehow God is obligated to offer salvation. Some do, but most don't say in those kind of crass terms that God has some sort of obligation to provide salvation for everyone. But they make this appeal to like his character. I'm not sure where they're getting this character from except from scripture. And here's here's what I think is interesting. I'm going to modify the translation a little bit on the fly here. But in Exodus 34, there's this scene where God, um, God comes down onto Sinai and he's delivering the law. And he, he passes before Moses and he sort of says his name and reveals his character. Right. And so this is verse six. I'm going to, I guess I'm going to modify it on the fly a little bit, but it says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in covenant love and faithfulness, keeping covenant love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so some people will point at this, go see here, this is where it says God's character is that he's steadfast in love, he's gracious and forgiving. But right. steadfast love, as you heard when I, I kind of updated the translation, it's a covenant love. 
It's not, right, it's not right a universal exactly. love. It's right. a particular love constrained sure. by a per, constrained to a particular people and established and grounded and rooted in a covenant. Right. And what happens to those outside of that covenant is that God will not clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the sons to the first and the fifth generation, third and fourth generation. Right. He by no means will clear the guilty. And that's, that's where I look and I see God's character. God's character is that for those who he has appointed in Christ, for those who he has um, covenanted to Christ, God's love, God's steadfast love, first and foremost, finds its, its center on the son, right? In eternity past. This is why the covenant of redemption is so important to maintain, is that God's promise to save a people is fundamentally not a promise to those people. It's a promise to his own son. That right he on. will bring about the conformity of many to the image of his son, so that the son might be the firstborn of many brothers. Right? Th- this is all for God's glory. We can't lose sight of that. But the idea that God's character somehow makes it that He must extend some sort of universal offer of forgiveness—not um, that there isn't an actual well-meant offer. Right? When God says, "Whosoever comes to Me, I will give rest." Right? When Jesus says that, it's not a conditional statement. It's not saying only the people, um, that the only these people here, I have enough forgiveness for. God could forgive all of humanity if, if He so chose. He didn't, though. And so this this doctrine of double predestination, this asymmetrical doctrine of double predestination, um, and the reason I chose this to go first is because we're going to see something similar. Uh, play out when we talk about the order of God's decrees, but this right. asymmetrical doctrine of double predestination, it's grounded and rooted in the covenant of redemption. It's grounded mm-hmm. and rooted in the in the fact that God in eternity past set his affection on a group of people who did nothing and would do nothing yes. to merit that. And it's that affection, we talked about this last week, it's that affection, it's that setting his love on those people that brings about their transformation and change and conformity to the image of Christ. It's what makes them lovable, not that they're they become lovable and then and then God loves them, but God loves right. them and that love itself transforms them and makes them lovable. On the flip side, God is not making the reprobate unlovable. They're already unlovable, right? They're already not worthy of God's love. They're already worthy of God's wrath. And all he does is leaves them, actively chooses to leave them in that position and actively withdraws himself. And so we have to keep that all in tension because if we lose that, then we end up with some incoherencies. We end up with this idea that like somehow God, who's sovereign over all the universe, who foreordains whatsoever comes to pass, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and does whatsoever he pleases, except saving some people. Right. He really wanted to do that. You know, he, he can he can maintain all of the atoms in the entire universe. He can flood the whole world. He can call everything to existence out of nothing. But these people that he really wanted to save, that his son died for, that he extended forgiveness to, he really just couldn't pull that off. And I know right. that's a bit of a caricature, but not that much of a caricature. I know that no one who holds a position would accept that as accurate, but I think it is a logical, necessary entailment of their view, right? That's that's the view. Whether I love Chad Bird, I love Eric Sorensen, I love the guys over 1517, but if you say that God has saved and forgiven everybody, but some people reject that, you're not putting them in the driver's seat. They've rejected right. it. I don't know why anyone would do that, but they did, right? That's not what we're saying. We're not saying that there is somehow that God just passes over some people in that he, he really wanted to save them, but like he just didn't do it. He couldn't pull it off. He couldn't do it. He actively chose not to save those people. Right. So there, there is a qualified sense in which we could say that he desires the salvation of all. The Bible uses that language. I think we can speak that way if we're, if we're understanding what we mean, but in a very real sense, there are people who God created who he had no intention to save, and it's not some unfulfilled desire that God has that brings that about. Where in other views, this 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 inability to save those whom he chose seriously calls into question the actual sovereignty of God. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's right on. We could go on for like another four or five hours, which I think I say almost every episode. It's but because we could every episode. Exactly. It's it's certainly true in this case because I think there is this sense sometimes where we inadvertently kind of characterize God as this frustrated lover, 
So he yeah. really wishes that everybody would hear this message and then would like respond to it and would come forward, would, you know, like get on their knees and come to the altar and confess him as Lord. And it would just be great if he could do that. And I've, I've often heard this as like kind of a lesser argument that, well, what God does here is he holds in abeyance all of that. And right. e- that is equally untrue that, yeah. you know, God is doing his mighty work in our world and when we see one sinner come to like repentance and confession in Christ to the person that sees themselves suddenly as those whom God has changed as like the covenant lawbreaker, we should all be like, Whoa, like, like it should be like miraculous, right? Like we should stand up and be like, can you believe what just happened there? Because just a one sinner coming to that place is this miraculous work of God because it is a complete transformation of the inner being, which only God can execute. We can't do on our own. So this idea that somehow God meets us halfway or we come to the place of the deserving poor and we reach our hands outstretched but empty is nonsense. Like yeah. God does everything. So to close this off, let me read from Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, which we have quoted before, but I think is all the more pertinent in light of the conversation we've had, and we should really let the scripture have the final say here. This is what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Amen. Amen. That's the truth right there. So I don't know where everybody's at this week. I don't know where you're listening to this, whether in your car, in your home, whether you're cleaning some blinds, or whether you're doing some work. But... Election and reprobation, these divine decrees of God, are one of the most amazing things that we can set our minds to try to understand. And yet, at the same time, what we find is that they're far above us. But what we know for certain is that they are God's love toward us, that they demonstrate His great mercy. And if I might, to quote Michael Horton, I like what he says just about this particular subject. This is from For Calvinism, but I thought... This is great. Also, we're trying to like perpetually get Michael Horton to come hang out with us (laughs) on the podcast. He says this, all of the great truths of God's word are mysteries in this sense. They elude our ability to capture their essence. They do not contradict reason, but transcend it. And I thought that's right on here. We must trust God with everything here. And what he says is in love before the foundation of the world, I predestined you to be holy and blameless chosen ones. And so we ought to relish in that in great humility and in great praise. Yeah. Well, Jesse, uh, just a reminder for everybody that you can enter the contest. We're giving away a copy of this new book called Be Thou My Vision, which is like a 31-day liturgical devotional guide uh, written by Jonathan Gibson. We're giving that away. You can head over to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest or reformbrotherhood.com slash 278 and enter to win a copy of that. And Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. Oh.